Yeah, our face shroud covers your your mouth, and then you have goggles on, so you really have no, you shouldn't have any unprotected skin. It should all be covered, but it does, it, it limits your ability to breathe. It's hot, it's smoky, it's not ideal conditions, and then you add the heat and uh, all the gear you're carrying. If they're if they're putting hose, stringing hose out, we call it plumbing the line, you're going to have another 75 pounds or so on your back that you're carrying. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly You're Different. We're a dialogue podcast, which is the opposite of a highly edited and produced interview show. We aspire to have real, different conversations, conversations that we hope make a difference to you. As California is suffering another horrible season of wildfires, we thought it would be powerful to give you some inspiring insight into how the heroes, the firefighters, and first responders who tackle these things, how they do it. We are reissuing my conversation with my friend, one of the men I respect the most in the world, retired battalion chief T.J. Welsh, because T.J. gives us an insider's view of how thousands of firefighters and first responders spring into action in a matter of hours in an attempt to save lives and property. T.J. has a storied background as a firefighting leader, and he shares with us what it's like to be a commanding officer in charge with leading this kind of massive effort. Also, I want to encourage you to go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode, because in there you'll see some links to how you can join me in making a donation to help the victims of these horrible fires. So check out the show notes on lockhead.com. We are sponsored by my good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And there is absolutely no question we are living in the data age. And my friends at Splunk bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Splunk brings data to everything. For more information, I encourage you to check out SPLU nk.com slash d2e as in data to everything now hey ho let's go redwood when it reaches a certain temperature it can withstand a lot of heat but then it just explodes. I mean, it's, it's truly an explosive sound. And, and excuse my ignorance, yeah. but that's different than other trees. Then some maybe of the pines and stuff will ignite easier. But I was pretty naive to all this because I'd really only been to, you know, a few brush fires and mostly structure fires. So that was my first eye-opening to it. It was years later where I went to work for a city municipal department, uh, Dublin San Ramon Fire Department, which later became Alameda County. So I spent my whole career at those agencies, but um, I, I, we would just go to many, many brush fires. In fact, the, the Altima, which is all grass, we'd go out there and burn a couple thousand acres and be home in time for dinner. So <laughs> you become kind of a use of that. But at a, there's a level of um, being a chief officer where you can go out of county, we call it, when you go outside of your district to some of these wildland fires. And I had been sent out to a, a couple of wildland fires, uh, Malibu in 93, which was a pretty significant, much like 
the Malibu fire they recently had, but maybe even a little more devastating, lots of homes lost. Um, not so many lives, but lots of very expensive homes. But in those days, they pretty much took a city guys and put us in front of a, a house, uh, a group of houses and said, don't let it burn, do all the best you can do. And, and we would just kind of sit and wait for the fire to come and then do our thing. It wasn't until uh, the late 90s where they started making more use of us instead of let us sit around where we actually went into the timber or the brush area and they, they started having us cut line or pre- put preventative line in where we try to stop it uh, and do another type of operation. So in the late 90s, this was my moment where it kind of changed my perspective of my role as a chief officer, as we call the strike team leader going out and overseeing some of these engine companies in the wildland arena. Um, it was a, it turned out being a little over a hundred thousand acre fire, which at the time was the largest fire in California, but it was in the, what, what year would that have been? I want to say it was 97. It was called the fork fire. I should remember it's in Clear Lake area. Isn't it crazy that it feels like every year we've had the largest fire in California history? And they are. They're expanding. So that was the largest fire in California at that time. That was 100,000 acres. So here we are today, you know, approaching 200,000 acres. Is that uh, with the campfire? The campfire is, it's it's not quite there. It's, I think, uh, 160,000 acres, 157,000 acres right in that area. And frame that in my head, like how, how many baseball fields is that? Or like, how, yeah, how you, should I wrap my brain around the size of that many, 150,000 acres? Yeah, push it it's, up on it's, well, they, they say um, an acre is about the size of a football field. So it, it's close proximity. So that's when we tell our new firefighters to give a rule of thumb, a measure of fire on how to uh, how the size of it. We, we say a rule of thumb would be football fields close to an acre. So that's kind of the, um, the mindset we set. So you can, that's a lot of football fields. So but, that Butte fire, that camp fire. Right. Is 150,000 you said? I think it's 157 last I heard. Right. Something like that. 150,000, almost 160,000 football fields. Yeah. I can't wrap my head around how much land that is. Yeah. It's hard. And especially when you put in perspective how many, residences there were, uh, the timber that's involved and how explosive it and how quickly it really burns. So they were, I think I heard they were estimating it was burning a couple of football fields per second, which you obviously are not going to outrun and, and hence the loss of life we had. Now, so, how is it that a fire moves that fast? I heard that in the news recently and I don't ever remember as sort of a generic civilian understanding the speed with which these fires move. Right. Well, there's a lot of different reasons for it, and I'm not uh, a specialist in that area. I've had some training in it, the basic training needed to, to do my jobs. But uh, they, when you look at uh, grass fires, like the Altamont area that we have, you know, in, up in that central Tracy area, which is we call those one-hour fuels, and they're called one-hour fuels because with an hour, they can go from wet to dry or dry to wet, mm. and they, they change rather rapidly. When you get to timber, they're talking about 1,000-hour fuels or 10,000-hour fuels. Well, the problem with the timber is it takes a long time for it to dry out, to become dry, but then it, consequently, it takes a long time for them to get the moisture back in them. And so we've had this drought for so many years um, and a lack of 
clearing the timber, the down timber, the bad timber. Timber is a, um, the forest products. There's just a lot of rules and regulations around that. So they like to just keep the, the dead timber falls and they leave it where it's at. So you, that just fuels the timber that's still alive. But that live fuel, even though it's a live, um, large piece of uh, timber, it's dry in the sense is that it's if we've had this um, you know lack of water for so many years, this drought situation. So they reach a certain temperature and then they just they just catch a fire and that that heat, radiant heat, puts off more radiant heat and it just expands a spell especially if it's on a, a hillside. So it just this radiation heat just causes the fire just to to explode. And and this is what I was saying about my fire first big fire timber fire first the the fire came through the the crowning of the timber it was so hot that it was actually the fire was 200 feet above the canopy of a forest if you can imagine that Fla- so it was 200 feet above the the top of the trees right which is is something that's hard to imagine unless you've been in it and and once you once we got through that component well then the understory the brush underneath burned through so you're Fire was on multiple fronts at multiple times. There was no time really to rest. And my crews were were spread out over a couple of miles of distance, protecting structures primarily. But there was no way to get to them. There's no way to drive and say, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to get on the road and pack out of here. Uh, if we were, our engine companies were stuck where they're at. Because so, you were surrounded by fire. And heavy timber, and the brush was so overgrown, the roads were so overgrown, it wasn't safe to get on the roads. So we had safety areas, safety zones, we call them, with, within their own little geographic areas they were signed off to. So it wasn't until the understory fire was in a situation where we had it in hand that we could actually check to make sure everyone was still alive, meaning our own fire people. So when I left that fire, I said, I'm not going to be so ignorant when I come to another wildland fire. The days of the city firefighters sitting in front of a house waiting for the fire to come with the hose line is gone. And now we just spend as much time out into the timber and and cutting brush and fighting fires. Uh, If we're just another resource for the wildland agencies to do that. So that was a moment for me. I hate to interrupt you, but let me make sure I understand. So in the past... There were the specialists in wildfires, right. and they brought you guys in, and you protected structures and did things that the quote-unquote city Correct. guys were more used to doing. Right. And over the course of your career, quote-unquote city firefighters have had to be trained to get in the, right in the mix and do what the specialists do. Is that is that? That's exactly right. And it's taken some time. And, and after that fire in um, the Fork Fire I was telling you about, there's also a significant event that happened in 1995. It was called the Calabasas Fire, in which a couple of city engines got burned over, and we almost lost the lives of some firefighters. So because of that, we started doing training and set training requirements. And I be- became part of that, the state level, to set training requirements for our folks because it really was not fair to send our members out there unprepared for what, what they were uh, going to have to be expected to accomplish. So you ultimately became part of the group of firefighters and, and leadership who set the bar for the education, the training that was required for city firefighters to get trained up so that when they headed to one of these horrible wildfires, they ha- they knew what they needed to know. That's right. To, to some extent, it, I don't want to 
try to say that we recreated anything, but what we did is we adopted the National Wildland Standard. It's a group called the National Wildland Coordinating Group, and we adopted their standard but made that requirement for local firefighters that go out in that environment. They had to have the same level of training. So if I'm a local firefighter here in the Santa Cruz area, I get trained in not just home fires and all the other things you guys do, car accidents. Of course, most of what you guys do is not fires, right? Correct. But I I get trained in all of the things that a quote-unquote normal city firefighter would get trained in. And then I get this additional training, or is it a certain group, or how, how does it work? Well, it, it's it's kind of a voluntary thing. It, so in order to participate in this, we call it mutual aid. And I'll just back. So mutual aid in the state of California is um, by far more advanced than any other mutual aid in the, in the nation or the world, for that matter. There's there's no other state or country that can mobilize the amount of resources we can mobilize to a fire in the same amount of time. So like with this Butte fire, how many firefighters are, but, are there? Yeah, so, well, at the peak of it, it was a little over 5,000. And I could say within eight hours of the fire, you could probably have three to 5,000 firefighters at that incident. Within, is, within eight hours of the fire starting, right. you could have three to 5,000 firefighters on the ground working. At least, if not on the ground, ordered it in route. So you, we could easily have thousands there, depending on the location. Now, the, the campfire that we were talking about, which is up outside of Chico, Paradise, is an area that we can get a number of, of resources there rather quickly, which is mind-boggling. The problem is, is you have to be able to deploy those resources. And we saw this in the Oakland Hills fire, that we had... Uh, and again, because it's of the location in the Bay Area, we had literally hundreds and thousands of engines showing up, but we didn't have the uh, system in place really to get them deployed to the right houses, and they were just backed up on the freeway. Back back at the Oak, what, what, do you remember what year that Oakland fire was? That 98? big fire? No, the earthquake was in eighty nine, so it was yeah. nine. It was in the nineties. Yeah, it's amazing how I can't remember that, and I, I was in the <laughs> middle of it all, but. <laughs> Those dates seem to slip by. Someone out there on the radio is yelling right now what the date is, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so um, how so these fires, when they get going, how how, fa- how long does it take for a fire to get moving where it's it's traveling uh, football fields in seconds? Well, it depends on a couple of things. Fuel type, grass can move. Uh, in a couple, you know, then as soon as it ignites, it could burn football fields. The timber takes a little time, and the mid brush, the the brush in between the grass and the timber, can take a little bit of time. But the weather's a big driver, and probably the primary factor, and that really is what prevents firefighters from doing their job. Is depending on the weather, we sometimes just can't get in front of the fire, and so we have to think way in advance of the fire in order to try to stop it. And way in advance means where the fire is likely to move, right? So if we can't if we can't get in the right on the fire line itself where the flames are, the flames are eight, ten, fifteen, twenty, two hundred feet in the air. We're obviously not going to put our personnel right in front of it because they wouldn't be able to stop it. So we have to look at alternatives. And there to, would be nothing they could do; they'd just be overtaken, right? And we could, yeah, we bring aircraft in, but aircraft is limited. We bring dozers in and try to cut line ahead of it. There's a lot of resources we can use, but the tactics really depends on the topography, the lay of the land. Is the fire burning up a ridge and we can get on the ridge and try to put a line in? Or is it burning downhill and we're getting to a creek and maybe that is our moment? 
But believe it or not, if the wind is right, the fire burns downhill just as fast as it burns uphill sometimes, just because it can be driven by by weather. So wind so, direction is a very material uh, factor. Right. So all these things come into play, and, and it requires a lot of this basic knowledge. And that's why we now teach city, local government guys, these basic components of uh, how wildland fires operate. So they have the basic understanding. The thought of having Big Brother watching you, these wildland agencies out there thinking, they're oh, well, they know what's going on. They wouldn't put us in a spot that would get us in trouble are long gone. So we have to educate ourselves now. So so with a huge fire like this camp fire we, we're having right, right now, what percentage of those firefighters, if there was 5,000 or so at the peak, uh, TJ, what percentage of them would be specialists, Cal Fire fo- uh, re- resources who, who mostly do this right. versus firefighters from, from local towns and cities around the state? Well, I would just take an educated guess that well well over 50% are local government agencies. The state doesn't have that many resources available to them. So out of the 5,000, I'd say at least 3,000 are local government, meaning they came from one of our neighborhood cities and towns and threw all their gear on a truck and drove up there. Yeah. So... That, that component of it. So the biggest thing is trying to keep those people safe and have them educated and, and um, understanding what's going to happen. And, you know, we, we've come a long ways in the process. We learned a lot from the military, and yet the military sometimes learns a little bit from us. From the military, we learned this commander's intent or leader's intent, which is just task, purpose, and in-state, meaning... Uh, what Hold is it? Task? Task, purpose, and in-state. Those are the three... And com- end-state. In-state. I'll try to enunciate a little better. So those those three hey, some things, of us didn't go to school, so I need to make sure I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, so just the basic understanding of when we show up, our task is to basically, we're going to say, okay, we want to uh, keep the fire to a certain geographic area. That could be the task. The purpose, obviously, is to uh, prevent harm from life and, and con- conserve property. And the in-state should look like... Uh, We've been, able, we've been able to contain it. And the reason we, we talk about this leaders and commanders intent, because when you mobilize that many resources that quickly, you can't go have a little discussion with each one of the members and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. They have to have somewhat of an understanding before you get there. And this is where I think it's phenomenal uh, what we're able to do in the emergency services by bringing a group of people together. I mean, think of the business world. How could you bring... All your now your your background is in marketing. I know part of it. So all these marketers and and try to accomplish a common goal without sitting, spending a day or two days or a week ahead of time discussing what those goals are. So it's no, pretty I mean, amazing. To, just so you understand how big the delta is between your world and the business world that I understand. Most companies, at least in the tech universe that I'm would be familiar with, by way of example, would do. Um, they call them SCOs or SKOs, sales kickoffs. Okay. And they typically do it once a year. They bring the entire field organization together. You know, in a bigger company, it can be many thousands of people. And you have a two to four day event typically. And it's uh, training oriented. You get trained on new products and new sales techniques. And, you know, you, you, right. you get your comp plan for the year and you get your territory for the year and this kind of stuff. And everybody in a business context gets their marching orders. So if you, if you're if you're the head of sales or you're the CEO of a company that has 
you know, three to 5,000 people in the field just to kind of get the similar size to do what you're talking about. That is to say, how do we go out and win right. this, this, this year? They get together for sometimes, you know, four or five days. And, and in your world, are you talking about one company or all yeah. the companies? Yeah, no, so, that's just one company. They all work for one employer with right. one that rolls up to one CEO. Yeah, so, and this is what's crazy, is these are all different employers with different real purposes in their real life. Some are volunteers, some are maybe paid professionals. but So some, we have volunteers at these massive wildfires. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're a big part of, especially in the area around Chico, there's a lot of volunteer fire departments uh, that that respond to it, and they operate just like a paid person. There's there's no difference, and and you don't treat them any different. Their no, skill levels all, no different. No, not at all. In fact, sometimes maybe they're better equipped to do it. They have better knowledge because of local knowledge and um, expertise from being in that area. So sometimes they're just because of our some of our members get paid and some are volunteers. It doesn't really differentiate the the abilities that they're going to provide and what they can provide at the fire. So when you when you look at it from the aspect you're taking different companies, di- different organizations from across the state, bringing together in one place within different a few equipment, hours. I would assume we we kind of have commonalities of because there's national standards for fire equipment. It doesn't mean everybody meets it. I've had uh, water tenders, which is just a big water tank that like construction type water tank that belong to a volunteer fire department show up with bald tires, bailing wire, holding them together, <laughs> and a guy that didn't have a license to drive it. But uh, unbeknownst to me until that time, CHP doesn't require any requirements when going code three to emergency. So they could operate the same level where our city department has really nice equipment, maintained equipment. So it comes from all different facets. But when you when you imagine you're taking all these different resources and trying to get them to accomplish one goal without the time really to explain to them, it's pretty it's pretty amazing what they can accomplish when they get there. Now we we have a plan we call it an incident action plan, and that plan is supposed to go to um, at least the the strike team leader we call it the division groups where they have an understanding and, and it has eight really basic components that are important to us. Primarily, the objective, what we're supposed to accomplish, is the, is the biggest one. So it would, just like in business, we would like to know what objectives are we supposed to accomplish throughout the event. Uh, there's a safety plan that's a big part of that. And probably the primary safety component for our own personnel is a communications plan that we have different communication, common communications, but we're not all on one channel, obviously, when you have that many people. So there's a couple of different components of it that we give out to these groups as they come in when time allows. But for the first, what we call initial attack, which is probably the first eight, 28 hours to 24 hours, there's no incident action plan. It's not until a group of people, a team shows up and publishes that, that they actually get that plan. But once we get that plan, we, we kind of define what the boundaries are. Then we kind of have a common, uh, I guess, set of goals to work towards. And so if you think about a big fire like we've just had now, right. it breaks out, the news of it happens, the mobilization begins. Right. Um, is there one, I don't know, is it, is it an incident commander or is there yeah, one yeah. leader who is ultimately the, the general or the right. CEO of that fire? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, and maybe some fire guys may not even know this question. We, we do have one incident commander, but... We do what we call are called unified command, meaning 
there could be multiple people speaking as incident commander, but they speak with one voice. In order to do that, they have to all agree to what is being stated. They all have to have a, a checkbook with them that they can write and write out of to meet those goals. So, for example, at the campfire, you have uh, the local sheriff's department is part of that command post. The local fire department is part of that command post. Cal Fire is part of that command post. And the Forest Service, because it's burning in all their different areas. So they all have a, a chip in, into the game there. So Because some of it's federal land and some of it's exactly. private land and some of it's uh, county land, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Now, the interesting thing is, is the Forest Service has different a different mission than Cal Fire does on a day-to-day basis. Cal Fire's day-to-day mission is to extinguish fires. The Forest Service, their day-to-day mission is they manage fires, meaning they'll allow fires to burn. If it's a lightning strike fire, they may allow it to burn. They don't immediately extinguish it where Cal Fire would. So while our day-to-day missions may differ, when that unified command group speaks, incident command, they speak as one voice. So they all come out with one voice. So So if I'm the Forest Service leader... And I'm communicating from right. from incident command. I'm the commander, and then if the local sheriff is communicating, he's the commander. It's it's sort of we, we no. we're passing the baton, or, or how how does no, it work? No, it's just one voice. You 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 stay in one room and you you speak with one voice. You don't you don't talk on behalf of the Forest Service. If you're the Forest Service person, you talk on behalf of unified command of that incident. So your goals will change and you sometimes have to compromise to meet the goals of, of the incident. And sometimes they don't change. Like in the forest service, we, they don't allow a lot in the wilderness areas, no wheeled vehicles, even during the fire, no dozers can't go up there. Fire engines can't go up there. What, why is that? It's the forest service uh, mission. That's their wilderness area. And that's what they hold by. So is it because it's too dangerous or because no, it's because they don't allow wheeled vehicles in the wilderness area ever, even for emergencies. They don't put wheeled vehicles in there. So you have to abide by these certain rules. Rules. So you may have that in the wilderness or in the forest service area of the fire, but when you get to the city, then it changes. So you kind of have to know the basis. And and this incident action plan that we develop or is developed at the incident kind of goes over those rules. Once you get there, you kind of understanding it. And there's maps that go along with the wilderness area. And then those rules change based on the geographic area that you're in. The other part of that is in the, in the wilderness area, there's typically, there, there are some structures, obviously, but they've been there for a long time, but there's typically not a lot of structures or at least dwellings and homes in, in the wilderness area. So um, for that reason, it's not as significant to us as when we get into the city and we're trying to save lives and property. Yeah. And so what's it like as a firefighter on the ground when you show up at a fire like this campfire and you, you have to go, you, you get your marching orders and you head into battle, so to speak, with this fire that is 200 feet above the tree line? Right. It, it, you know, it, it, it changes over time. So we have what we call initial attack. The first in crews, obviously, they're not getting a plan that says this is what we're, um, we're supposed to do. What they operate off is what we call that leader's intent, commander's intent. They know, obviously, the goal is to prevent uh, harm to, to life and try to preserve property. So they will just take a piece of dirt, if you will, and start doing their job within an area until this command structure grows. So an incident commander or this unified command as it grows, 
they can't reach out to everybody. It becomes beyond the span of control. So in the military world, in the fire world, in fact, um, a lot of studies have been done on this, they, they have come to some type of agreement that a person really can't handle more than six different objectives or six different resources that have different missions. And it really depends on the, the criticality of, of what the task is. So because of that, we break down our units into these tangible groups where uh, our resources, where we don't go beyond the span of control. So in the command structure, we have basically uh, five different groups. So you have the incident commander, and below him is his his command staff. So the part of that group is a public information officer, a safety officer, or a group of safety officers, and um, they, those people report directly to the incident commander under his or her toolage and kind of gives them. So the public information, the safety officer, and uh, forgive me, I just forgot, I should know this. Communications officer? No, not comms. So then underneath that is uh, the general command staff, which would be a finance group that tracks every penny that's being spent on the fire. Uh, because there's a whole lot of chargebacks that need to happen, right? There's because millions of, and millions and millions of dollars that's going to get charged. Yes. If I'm if I'm Central Fire or Santa Cruz Fire, and I have two crews that go off to this thing, right? Somebody's going to send me some money to pay for these crews. It yeah. So the, come the out city of, the city of Santa Cruz is going to get reimbursed when they come back for sending their people up there by the state, by the by the state or by the federal agency, depend on who is responsible for it. And in this case, um, where it's in this paradise area, we'll get money through the federal government in return. And so that will be part of it. And I, and I liaison is the other part of that. The, I should have remembered liaison. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit how that works. But so, you and have, so how, what would this fire cost at the, when, when this, oh, this, when this campfire is finally done? What would, what, what, what's the range of what this is going to cost the American taxpayer. Yeah, I. You know what? I would hate to even guess because we've never suffered this type of lie, loss of lies, um, loss, loss of, of life. life. There yeah. we go. And uh, and structures in any fire we've ever had. You know, we're we're looking at structures loss that we've never experienced before. So when you look at loss to insurance companies and the resources that used up there, it's going to be in the billions. It's it's, yeah. it's, it's going to be. Uh, just astronomical. I couldn't even fathom to guess what it's going to be. Um, way beyond comprehension. When you consider, but it's, it's like it's like a it's like a small war we're fighting. It actually actually is, and it's done over such a small period of time with so many resources. Uh, it's crazy that we can even get out there and and do it. In my mind, it's it, having been involved in these fires for many many years. I'm still amazed at what we're able to accomplish. And, it, and if people could go up and experience, you know, it's a loss for a lot of individuals. And we've lost, look at the life we lost in this. We're, we're up to 80-something already now. And, and the number of missing, and I realize not all the missing are going to end up dead, but some, it, I mean, it, some horrible percentage of them will. I mean, Absolutely. And so the may number never is, be found, right? The number is shocking. I mean, the number's shocking at 80, and it's going to go up. Right. So it's it's to me, it's just amazing that we can get a group of resources throughout the state and nation to come together in a small to try to put a dent to, to hold this to a minimum. I'd hate to see what would happen if we didn't have 
the tools that we have and the resource availability we have to, to make this happen. And in many cases, it's, you know, we just try to minimize, obviously minimize the loss because it's beyond the firefighters' control to get in front of some of these fires. So you have the finance component. There's an operations group. Operations is the day-to-day group that goes out and runs the fire. And, and their goal is to look at tactically what can we do based on the resources we have, based on the weather. Uh, and so there's a, a bunch of different factors that come in there. And then there's the planning group. The planning group is the one that gets together and, and they really try to put together um, the information, the tools, GIS tools, mapping tools. Where's the fire going? Topography, topography so that our planning people send out different groups of people within their, their direction and supervision who look at the incident from uh, on the ground. They'll go out and say, this is an area that uh, there's a lot of residences in. So we need to hold this one steady versus, hey, there's no residents, there's no life loss in this area. So we may choose because of the resources we have to let that area burn. So the plans kind of put that stuff together. And then there's a logistics who kind of support the overall incident. And those are the basic components of uh, of an, uh, what we call a command team that puts together. So the state has... They've narrowed it down. When I was on a command team for eight years with CAL FIRE, and we had 10 teams at the time. Now they're down to six teams in the whole state. So um, a lot of that is just because it's hard to keep the people trained at that level uh, through attrition. Six six teams that can run a massive fire like this. Right, through CAL FIRE. So the feds, uh, the foresters, they have a couple teams in California also. So there's, there's more than just the CAL FIRE teams, but CAL FIRE is by far the largest used in in the state. We call them type one teams that get used for these types so of incidents. The, that leadership must be exhausted now that quote unquote fire season is, I don't know, you, you tell me, is it eight months of the year, 10 months of the year? Yeah, it seems uh, to be going further and further, right, into the year. We spent Thanksgivings uh, on fires before, so this time of year is not really out of the question to see these type of fires, even up to Christmas, we've had fires depending on the weather up to that point. And because of the droughts, those heavy fuels, remember the 10,000, the timber, you know, a little bit of rain, like we may be seeing this week, isn't putting a dent in helping uh, give more moisture to those type of fuels. So So when three inches of rain falls on a massive fire like that, it doesn't, it doesn't help. It it does help. It doesn't help the timber though. So if the timber is, is up and running, you're going to have a tough time because the fuel is so volatile and it's so dry and it's so big that it just needs to get going. The, the trick to it is the ladder fuel is a brush that help it get going. The rain does help that. So, you know, and now you see, but, I but think three or six inches of rain is not going to put out a redwood tree that is essentially a a wood bomb. Yeah, if it's if it's a, a timber fire is going, it's not going to help to that much to get that a little bit of rain on top of it. Yeah. So, so they bring these teams together, and everyone has their role to play in trying to uh, grow an incident so they can support an incident of that magnitude, and uh, everyone is just. Um, you know, they just, they perform. It's amazing how they perform. And the thing I, I like about these teams, while we have certain training standards that we meet to get there, there's there's some mentoring that can go on, but really everyone's performing at their own level. And it's it's amazing to see what people 
step up to. And when I say that, I'm talking about firefighters. Without much direction, this whole concept of leader's intent, they can go out and do the job without a team. But to support them long term, you're going to need fuel, water, food, and uh, the supplies to support them. So uh, without that, they're, they're very effective just by showing up on this initial attack to fight fires. And so maybe let's go to, you know, where you spent a lot of your focus, which is on the logistics of putting up a operation that can support 1,000 to 5,000 firefighters in, you tell me, if we have a fire like this back when you were doing this before you retired, how long would it take you to put together a city and the supply lines? And you, you tell me all the things that need to happen to make sure that, 5,000 firefighters can do their job and, and, and what, what you do to do make that happen. Yeah, so there's some great tools available to us. And, you know, I did logistics for CAL FIRE team for eight years. The first two incidents I went to as a deputy logistics, and I'll, I'll go back to the Oakland Hills fire I was talking about. That was such a, a problem because we got the resources there, we just couldn't support them. And so the Office of Emergency Service from California decided they were going to put together their own command teams to help run these fires within the cities. But because Cal Fire already had them up and running, they they negotiated with the state to say, Office of Emergency Service to say, don't go out and create new teams because we really don't have enough call volume to keep everyone trained to be efficient at the job. We'll just add local government people to our teams so that they're trained also. So that's how I got on. I had, uh, you know, a friend who was an incident commander of a team who, who brought me on and put me in this logistics position, and uh, it's not a very sexy position to be honest with you, because everyone wants to be fighting the fire, doing the tactical part, right? So, but I couldn't turn down the offer. It was a great offer. <laughs> no. yeah, but somebody's got to run the operation Absolutely, that enables yeah. it, right? And, yeah, you just and, want I mean, somebody did... else to do it. You want to go fight fire, so. Um, Anyways, I was very fortunate to be asked to be part of this uh, logistics staff. And then after the second incident uh, of me going out, the first one was up in the middle of Timbuktu, just grass, pasture land, which is all important. But um, that was the first one. The second one was at a Butte complex, just like this one. It's called the Butte complex in 1997, I believe it was. So it was the same area that this one was run. And um, it was a series of lightning strikes that caused the fires. Again, drought situation, so we had a lot of timber fires. And I was the deputy logistics on that one. Well, right after that incident, they termed out the logistics chief, and they put me in that position, which I didn't think I was prepared for. So I spent the the remaining eight years I was on a team doing that job. And it, it was really very satisfying, not because... Uh, logistics has a, a big role to support the incident. Otherwise, it's not going to be able to accomplish their goals, right? If you don't have fuel, if you don't have hose and your your resources don't feed your people. And, and you've got to do everything from all of the tools and technologies required to fight the fire. Right. To the food. Do you build, do you build tent cities? Yeah, we, we literally built a city. So typically what we do is we use a lot of the fairgrounds. The Chico Fairgrounds is what we use in the Butte Complex. And so you have an infrastructure to work from. Or sometimes we'll use campgrounds. Uh, we've used just 10 buildings. We'll, we'll, we'll use whatever we can find as far as infrastructure. And you got to bring in Johnny on the spots. And you, I mean, yeah. you got to build a city 
in a campground or in a fairground for 5,000 firefighters. Within hours. So literally, we can feed, well, at a minimum, 3,000 firefighters within five to eight hours steaks and and have them a hot cooked meal. Up until that time, till we get them cooked meals, you know, we can have bag lunches and bag meals or MREs if we have to, because they're already uh, ready for us. But we try by the first operational period to have, you know, hot cooked meals or they're, they're working very hard out there. Obviously, they needed to ma- maintain their, their health and um, the energy that we expect them to Use out there. This may be a silly question, but it's on my mind. If I'm one of those firefighters, am I allowed to have a beer at the end of the day with my steak? Yeah, that's a good question. And this maybe this would be good education even for some of our firefighters. The answer is no. That's what I figured. <laughs> so for those of us... Boy, I bet you want one, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some good stories about I this, might but, even drink a Heineken. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. It's, it's something that uh, it's... We still battle in every incident, but the reality, reality is this: we're not allowed to drink on duty. And yeah, we're on duty from the time we leave until the time we get home. Now, the interesting part is, we give time off for these people. They obviously can't just go. The first twenty-four, thirty-six hours, everyone's working hard. There's no breaks for anybody. So, for twenty-four hours, thirty-six hours, as a firefighter, or you as the head of logistics, or anybody else on this fire. We probably worked those 36 hours straight. Yeah. And you may take a cat nap somewhere, You may, but everyone's working. There's there's no breaks to ramp up on an incident. But once we get to a, a level where, like, they've been operating now for the last couple of weeks at the campfire, we have either 12-hour shifts or 24-hour shifts. If it's a CAL fire, they usually like to do 24-hour shifts. So meaning your engine gets an assignment, they work that assignment for 24 hours, and then they get 24 hours off. And we try to give them a decent place to rest and relax so they're not... But they don't go home. They go to TJ's campground. <laughs> exactly. And, and if they're lucky, they may get a hotel room, but t- they're going to be housed somewhere. But even on that 24 hours off, you're not off duty, meaning you can't have a beer, even though it's your, quote, day off the, the fire. So that's where we run into a little bit of troubles with people who aren't don't understand the system because it's easy to do when you're housed and you're going to restaurants for dinner sure. and outside the area. So yeah, it's always tempting and we still have to, you know, police those issues. So you got to wait till the fire's out before you can have a beer. You have to wait till you get home and punch out and, and you're on your own day off at home. Then you can have your beers. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's a motivator to put the fire out. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's a crazy time in our, in our world because of things happening uh, there's a lot of these questions that come up that that we haven't really we know the answers I think but I don't know that we've had, actually have policies for now like uh, marijuana is legal now right recreational marijuana yeah these uh, edibles are legal right well how do you monitor that and if you guys are it's no different than so do we have alcohol. a Cheech and Chong fighting fires <laughs> well let's hope not but it's just another thing that you kind of got to watch sure. out there so. Yeah, and what's it like to be uh, like a frontline woman or man on these strike teams, on these engines, fighting a fire like this, working a 24-hour shift? Yeah, it, it, it can be uh, completely exhausting, way beyond people's mindset. I mean, you've got what, about 40 pounds of equipment? Or to tell me what's on your person. Yeah, it depends on what your assignment is, but up to with, you know, 70, 70 pounds. So we wear protective clothing, which, you know, in itself is not really heavy, but 
uh, where we run into problems is heat-related injuries because now you have to be completely covered with a, a Nomex material. Typically, they like you to be double layered. In other words, you mean a T-shirt underneath your Nomex. Uh, you know, some people wear long pants uh, or just shorts under their Nomex pants. You have boots, you have a hood shroud on, you have gloves on. You don't get a lot. Your body doesn't really get a chance to breathe. And then typically in these fires... And are, you, you, are you sweating like crazy oh, yeah, in this you're, outfit? You're sweating profusely because you're, you're, it's always... Are you wet? Like, is, are you soaking wet? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we take, you know, multiple t-shirts and you try to change your, your undergarments. But, uh, you know, in the weather of wildland fires, typically it's 80, 90, 100 plus degrees out there. And so we have to keep and a close And you're in a spacesuit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The other thing I found incredible is just shows you how naive I am. But of course, in a wildfire situation, you're not—you don't have oxygen. Yeah, we don't carry oxygen. I mean, our, some of our engines have SCBAs where you could put tanks on, but that's really not the place for it because it's going to last a short period of time. So, so you're you're breathing all of this toxic air, right? And there's different standards on that. Um, they make these little pocket masks that have like pellets in them that kind of cut the smoke, the particles out. A lot of guys use bandanas, but then some agencies don't allow even bandanas on their on the face because they're afraid that uh, if it gets moist or wet from your workout, then you may get uh, heated steam into your lungs. Believe it or not, just oh, wow. from the bandana. So um, everyone's got their own different policies on. So that. some gals and guys are just nothing on their mouth and nose, and they're just breathing that toxic air in. Yeah, our face shroud covers your covers your your mouth. And then you have goggles on, so you really have no, you shouldn't have any unprotected skin. It should all be covered. But it does, it, it limits your ability to breathe. It's hot, it's smoky, it's uh, it's not ideal conditions. And then you add the heat and uh, all the gear you're carrying. If they're if they're putting hose, uh, stringing hose out, we call it plumbing the line, or you're going to have another 75 pounds or so on your back that you're carrying. So um, you have your, we... We all carry web gear, which has got a radio on it. We have water. Does every firefighter have a radio? Every, well, it depends on the agent. It's agency-driven, so you don't know if they're coming from all these different agencies. But we we really encourage every firefighter to have a radio. And you can check out radios at the camp when you get there if you need them so that every firefighter does have a radio. So you as the head of logistics, you're bringing That's in a logistics thing. Yeah, community. We bring it. out a whole comm center. So in the 19... Uh, 97 Butte complex fire. There's been actually another one in between them. So Butte burns uh, every now and then. It's not uncommon for the fire up there. But the whole 911 system went down for Butte County, and we actually ran the initial dispatch 911 system right out of our incident base from a trailer. And we, we actually brought out local government from Santa Clara, San Jose, real-life dispatchers, to come up there and work in the wildland. And they, when you dial 911, you got them. And so if you're having a medical in a town and around the fire, it was still coming through our incident wow. base there. It's pretty crazy what you can accomplish up there. A lot of tools available to us. And remind me, TJ, how long have you been retired now? Uh, five years. Five years. Yeah, coming up on five years. And so what's it like for you now to, you know, be sitting at home and turn on the news and, and see these huge fires and whether it's Malibu or this, this Butte campfire or, and, and, and you know exactly what's going on. I mean, that's what you did for so many years and, and at a very senior level. 
Um, what's it like as a, as now as private citizen, right? TJ Welsh to, to see this going on. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, um, it, it, probably the biggest struggle with retirement is missing the ability to challenge your mind and try to try to look at how you're going to attack these type of problems. I, I appreciated that in my job more than anything was the challenge of what was presented to you. These guys, like, like how do we put up a city for 5,000 people? In yeah. Three and, hours and, really, or less? and really that's almost becomes automatic because we have a lot of good players, right? We have contracts, we have people that uh, come out. So like the kitchens are going to feed the people that our prisons actually run the, the inmates run these, these kitchens that come out and cook for our folks. What, what? Yeah, our, our prisoners do amazing, and and they take so much pride in their work. So they wear. So, so the prisoners are feeding the firefighters. Yes, they're they're the chefs. So we get the. Food. Now I got to believe this is not you know uh, this is not Manson doing this, right? <laughs> yeah, no. The, well, you know, it's changed over the years. In fact, um, the the I guess the way they rate inmates, there's some rating system from the Manson type down to the type that was maybe selling drugs on the street. And so our governor uh, lowered that standard to get some of these uh, drug people that, that were not, he considered harmless out of the prisons and back on the street because our prisons were overcrowded. So that brought a higher tier of inmate. A felon. <laughs> yeah. A, a, a more well, they're all, they're all fellas, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, to be part of these teams, you have to be, have uh, shown that you're going to be trustworthy. And, 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 you know, I guess every now and then one goes AWOL. But my years of experience with them, they were all above reproach. Just they did phenomenal job. So a local warden mm-hmm. in concert with you right. mobilizes, let's say, for this campfire. How, yeah, how, so how many saying, inmates so would be there As soon as I with... would get a call for like the campfire, yeah. let's say it's day one, day two, and they're going, okay, this thing is it's going to be a, a big fire. It's going to take off. Um, and we, our team would get a phone call. So my incident commander would just send me an email or text saying, I know we're heading to this fire. Now, most of us are already in tune of what's going on. Are we going or not going? What team is up? And so on. So as soon as uh, I get the call, then I place all my orders. I start, yeah, I start talking about, I, I need an MKU. I need uh, the food order sent out. And we call it a short list. I'd make, make that phone call before I even leave to go to the incident. So by time, and just like your incident commander counts on you, you count on all your direct reports to, hey, we're going. Right. They know what to do. They have their right. punch lists. They're trained. Right. Expectations are pretty high. But the great thing about this, I don't know if, if you've uh, ever looked. MIT did a study uh, a number of years ago on, on what really motivates people outside of uh, a mechanical type task. And it's pretty amazing that uh, they looked at a, three major things they found motivate people. One is autonomy, being able to operate at your own level. Secondly, secondly was mastery of the skill. People who were given that latitude wanted to master their own skill, maybe even way beyond what the expectation was. And the third part was a sense of purpose. So that's what's great about um, these teams. And I, I wish everybody could be part of a team like this because it was probably the biggest uh, growth for me as a, a manager, as a chief officer, not just from a standpoint of technical things, but as a person of leadership to learn how to let other people do their job. And and they will almost always surprise you and, and 
and act way beyond your expectations. And that's, that's what happens even with these camps. So these are with these uh, MKUs that are inmates. They show up. These guys have full dress uh, chef gear on. I mean, they, they, they have towels over their arms. I mean, they want to provide a great level of service to the firefighters. Wow. And, uh, and how many inmates would be at a fire like the campfire? Oh, man. you! I bet there's... Uh, well, we run out of crews pretty quick because I think Cal Fire tries to keep 1,700 inmates ready to go to fires at any given time. But beyond that, then you have other crews uh, that come from different organizations. There's female inmate crews that come out. There's youth authority uh, crews that come out, young inmates that come out. And then we start get into uh, other types of hand crews and stuff that come out. But yeah. There's a minimum of, you know, you're, you're probably, there's probably a couple thousand out right now. Wow. So Incredible. Pretty crazy. And they all... So we, we, all we owe those inmates a debt of gratitude to thank those inmates for supporting our firefighters. You know, um, just as a side note, I, I now that I'm retired, I, I have a couple jobs I do. But one of them is I work for the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and I investigate firefighter fatalities. So if, if a firefighter dies in the line of duty, um, they're investigated, and Congress enacted this in 1998. So I'm just now uh, finishing my first one, and it happened to be an inmate firefighter. But the interesting thing, talking with the, I just spent uh, this last week talking with the, the And this is, a, to, to be clear, this is an inmate who is trained to fight fires right. outside of the prison. Right. And a fire like this Butte fire goes down, and this inmate is shoulder to shoulder with the women and men who maybe work. Absolutely. In, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they're they're respected out there. And can they get a job when they um, when they get out as a as a firefighter? Well, I think the tough part for them is uh, because they're felons. The medical side of the world doesn't really allow you to be a felon and, and get become a medical like an EMT or like something an EMT like that. or paramedic. So I think that's a struggle with them. I would hope so. The people that I just been working with uh, are phenomenal. I mean these these guys train. I would hate to say much harder. They're a captive audience, right? Yeah, So the guys are, these guys are telling me they're scheduled. They get up at 3.30 in the morning. They start their first workout at 3.30 in the morning. They uh, come back to the firehouse or they, in the firehouse, they eat about 5.30 in the morning. They have their breakfast. Then they do all their, their chores around the firehouse. And then they do some training and then they go out for their second uh, workout. So they work out twice a day. And uh, so they work very hard. They're like hard. professional athletes. They are. And they work very hard at, at, at doing that. And when I was talking to them, they want to, they, the ones I spoke to, realized that they owed society a debt because they had made mistakes. But in giving that, you know, you would hope at some point this rehab would actually work and they could actually, you know, be able to go back and do something. Work as get, firefighters. Work, get outside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I was pretty impressed with them. But that's why you notice on these uh, large wildland fires, everybody's given 110%. And, you know, the autonomy that we, they're given, one, because you can't manage all that those resources, um, allows them to uh, work beyond our expectations. And there's so many stories that come out of these incidents, um, whether it's an individual I was speaking to you about, uh, the first one of the first fires I went to and as a strike team leader and the engines were all spread out and it wasn't until after the timber fire was out that we could check on them. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the 
dialogue between the homeowners where I had them all in a little housing area with the, well, I shouldn't say housing area. It was one little tiny uh, ranch house, rural house. I had 27 residents, 10 dogs, because it was the only piece of green grass in the whole timber forest. But the the relationships that you build it with these people is amazing. So think about the thousands of people up there in Campfire right now. They're relying on these individuals to save their homes. And, and our, our members in the fire service are doing a heck of a job given the circumstances that's being uh, presented to them. Yeah. Well, TJ, this has been a riveting conversation. Is, is there anything else that you would like to share about, um, you know, what it's like trying to fight these crazy, scary wildfires? Yeah, you know, I, there's a lot to, to talk about. I, I, I think the biggest thing is, is um, and I, I hate to say it because I was a firefighter, that we owe our firefighters anything, but um, this is what they get paid for, and they I think they do a heck of a job. They do a phenomenal job for um, those. They, they take it very seriously, what they're being presented with, and it's a struggling time. And, and the unfortunate part is we get caught into a lot of politics in, in the world about, you know, who's at fault for something like this campfire. And uh, the loss to the human life is just something that is hard for anybody really to grasp in that situation. And I don't know where we're getting like. I love to see the community outreach that we've seen, even from Santa Cruz. You yourself has, have been helping out. And um, that's amazing. If we could, if we could live in that little world of uh, saying, "How can I help?" Uh, and all the other attributes of life, we'd be a, a lot further along. I think. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's been really uh, incredibly. It sounds so trite, but it's been really moving to me to see our little town of Santa Cruz, and you know, uh, one, one of one of the retailers here, a store on the west side that we like called Sawyer. They sell all this. You've been over there, yeah, right. you know, and it's run by um, it's run by a wonderful gal, and and you know, so she just organized. She, she had an employee who grew up in the area, and she just rented a truck and sent out an email list to all the Sawyer customers and said, hey. We're organizing a truck. This is what the various authorities have told us people want and need. Please come and support us. And, you know, Carrie and I went out there and we saw them loading the truck and, and we had sat down. Carrie went and got all these uh, Target gift cards. Oh, great. And and then, you know, her, Carrie being Carrie, she, she got cards with little notes. And we sat down, her and myself, and our uh, 16, 14, and 10-year-old uh two nephews and the young ones and niece. And we all sat there and we wrote little love notes to these That's people. Awesome. And we, we asked the kids to sign their names and give their ages so they understood who was sending them this note. And, you know, we looked at these beautiful things that these kids wrote saying that, you know, we, we hope that, that, you know, as the smoke clears and your life gets better and just want you to know that there's people in Santa Cruz thinking about you and we're sending our love. And like, I'm sitting there writing these notes with these children and I'm like, my eyes are all watered up. And, yeah. and then, you know, you get over to Sawyer and you see all these people contributing and uh, Stacy, the owner there and all that stuff. Right. And that's just our own little community in it. So it really is heartwarming. And, and look, I'll, I'll say it. I think what you guys do, I think you guys are superheroes. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate it. I, I think firefighters get a lot of credit. The reality is what you guys just did for that community can't be taken away because uh, these folks have nothing now, 
Literally. They, and, and if you look at this socioeconomic area we're talking about, they didn't have much to begin with. Right. So when you're talking about taking away their home and uh, their belongings... And so many it, of them don't have insurance. Yeah. Where do they go from here? So it's it's the outpouring support from folks like yourself and the communities like that that's going to get these people through the process, that's for sure. Well, TJ, I can't thank you for this time uh, enough. Um, I've been wanting to sit down with you for a long time. I hope we get to do it again where we can unpack your career and hopefully uh, that of uh, that of Chris Haas's as well, because I think that's another fascinating conversation to have. Yeah. But uh, you have a unique insight into these uh, wildfires, and I can't thank you enough for sharing it with me. Well, thanks. I was very fortunate that I was allowed some opportunities to to give me some of that insight. And, and really, it's made me a, a grateful person for the community to see the outpouring support when these type of events happen. So thank well, you. They don't make better men than you. Well, you're being too nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, TJ. Well, there he is, TJ Welsh. And um, it's hard to find inspiration in the tragedy that we're seeing right now with these fires in California. But one thing we can certainly find inspiration in is the courage uh, and the tenacity and the commitment of the incredible firefighters and other first responders uh, who works so tirelessly to make a difference. Now, are you a nonprofit trying to make a difference? If so, NetSuite wants to help. The NetSuite Social Impact Program is designed to help nonprofits and social enterprises of all sizes quickly and easily take advantage of NetSuite and the latest cloud technologies so that you can make the world a different, a different place. For, non, for qualified nonprofits of all sizes, NetSuite makes a base donation and activation of their suite built for you. And uh, NetSuite can help you if you're a profit-making business, of course. So regardless of how uh, what type of outfit you are, nonprofit or profit, NetSuite wants to help you turbocharge your growth. To learn more and to set up a free growth review, check out netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. All right, we would like to thank the incredible women and men, the heroes, the firefighters, the first responders, and yes, the inmates too, who put their lives at risk to save our lives. Again, if you want to make a donation like I am making, go to lockhead.com, click the show notes for this episode, and there's a bunch of links in the show notes for um, who you can donate some money to. Also, check out my friends at onelifefullylive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one, lifefullylive.org. Now, is it time for a virtual assistant? Is it time to learn how to scale yourself? Why not check out my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants and uh, leverage the power of virtual assistant. Check out bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts. Teach CPR, support your local firefighters and first responders. And uh, remember, if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you. I love you too, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Uh, today, our deepest apologies go to the entire board of directors of PG and Evil. Sorry, folks, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. I really appreciate you investing part of your life with me. Uh, until we're together again, 
stay legendary, and of course, follow your different. Yeah.